Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be reading this morning this final message before Christmas. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I had been praying for a number of weeks and been thinking for, I take my, I take my pre-Christmas sermon very seriously. I really, really want to make as much effort as possible to make as much of Christ as possible on this day, which celebrates Jesus. So intentionally, at least for us who know him, it was to some surprise that in prayer and study and thinking, this passage seemed to have that unusual sense of God's finger on it, pointing me to consider and explore. And at first I was kind of puzzled as to why this might be a relevant passage for a pre-Christmas sermon. But I want to suggest to you this morning and show you that there are kind of three layers of Christmas happening in this particular passage. And, and the first layer or the first level is just this correlation between what Jesus says in that passage. He looks and sees a crowd who are helpless and harassed, harassed and confused, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he prays, or he asks the disciples, commands the disciples, ask the Lord of the harvest to send more shepherds, more people to work this harvest. There's a correlation between that sentiment and a verse we read oh, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago in Ephesians 4 that begins in verse 7. He, Jesus, descended from on high and gave gifts to men. And there's a very Christmassy notion of Jesus descending from on high and giving gifts to men. And then the gifts it described, it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's a connection between these two passages. It's Jesus and Matthew looking at the crowd and seeing that they are indeed tossed to and fro and carried about and harassed and confused And the solution in Matthew 9 is he turns to the apostles and says, pray that God will send more workers to help these people. And then when we get to Ephesians 4, we see that Jesus is answering his own prayer. He descended from on high and gave this world gifts, gave gifts to men. And the gifts he gave to men were meant to establish them so that they would no longer be harassed and helpless but that they would be built up together as the church until they all achieve the fullness of the stature, the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's one layer. 
There's a second layer, and that is that any time we begin to think about the emotions of Jesus, and the emotions of Jesus are on display in Matthew 9, Anytime we begin to think about the emotions of Jesus, we start thinking about the nature of Jesus. And there's something about this idea of Jesus feeling something that drives us kind of right back to the mysteries of the incarnation. I'm reading a little book right now by B.B. Uh, Warfield, and it's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And all he does with this little book, is he just goes through all the instances in Scripture in which Jesus is said to have felt something. And then sort of systematizes and categorizes and discusses all of the various emotions of Christ. Almost at the very beginning of his introduction to this work, he deals with this idea that whenever we begin to think about the emotional life of Jesus, issues relating to his nature arise. And he cites Calvin, for instance, who said, those who imagine that the Son of God was exempt from human passions do not truly and seriously acknowledge him to be a man. So there's this sort of stoic perspective of Jesus in which, in some sense, his humanity is robbed. And then there is, of course, an overly emotional side as well. Here's what I've learned. This is the profound truth of, 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 of my Christian life, and that is we are always trying to create a God in our own image. But we're clever enough that we keep the name Jesus over whatever we have created. Uh, this is a great problem. This is a great sin. Um, and for some of us who are, mo are more emotionally inclined, we will tend to create a Jesus in our own image. And for some of us who are more stoically inclined, we will do the same. And right early on in his discussion of the emotional life of our Lord, B.B. Warfield just says, there is a tendency in the interest of the dignity of his person to minimize and there is a tendency in the interest of the completeness of his humanity to magnify his affectional movements. The one tendency may run some risk of giving us a somewhat cold and remote Jesus, whom we can scarcely believe to be able to sympathize with us in our infirmities. And the other may possibly be in danger of offering us a Jesus so crassly human, so scarcely, so as to scarcely command our highest reference. So whenever we're talking about the emotional life of Jesus, which is a really fascinating area, begin to deal with this notion of God and man. We, we begin to deal with these questions about the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And I just want to dwell for a minute on this thing that we see in our text in which Jesus observes the crowd and has compassion. This is the most common emotion attributed to Christ. Say that again. Compassion is the most common emotion contributed to Christ. In verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. One of the things you'll see, this is an aside, when you study the emotional life of Jesus is that his feelings were always based on facts. Not the other way around. And so in this text, we see that Jesus observes the crowd as they are. He sees them and based on who they are, he responds appropriately with emotion, with the appropriate emotion. So compassion is the most commonly attributed 
emotion of Jesus, but all of Jesus' emotions are based on facts. What does that tell us? We're all in deep trouble all the time. <laughs> That's the fact. <laughs> That's the baseline fact that Jesus is interacting. <laughs> We're all in big trouble all the time. So emotion, a compassion is the most prevalent of all Jesus' emotions. Uh, number two, compassion is a kind of love, but not an admiring kind of love. It's a kind of love, but not an admiring kind of love. He does not love us because he sees something admirable in us. I was reading this, this booklet from B.B. Warfield, and in one of the places he uses the phrase complacent love, complacent love, to refer to Jesus' love for the Father, and he uses it in a positive way. Now, I think this book was probably written in like 1920-something. Um, so I've never heard complacency used in a positive way. And I've certainly never heard it ascribed to Jesus. And I've certainly never heard it ascribed to Jesus's love for the father. So I'm like super confused at this point, but you know, that right hand click on the old computer that I was reading on gives you definitions for stuff. And complacence, complacency means often we think of it as referencing our view of ourselves, right? But complacency can mean perfectly satisfied and non-critical. It's just a pretty sweet way to think about Jesus' love for the Father. Jesus' love for the Father has no um, criticisms. It's perfectly satisfied. It's, 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 it's totally, completely positive. No reservations, no criticisms. The Father and the Son, and this is key to our hope in the gospel, the Father and the Son look upon one another with zero criticisms, with perfect satisfaction, and so forth. In that sense, B.B. Warfield was talking about a complacent love. And honestly, that phrase might just be too confusing for our modern ears, but the meaning of it, it's, it's the sweetest hope we have in the gospel. But the love that Jesus has for people is not, in this sense, a complacent love. It is, in fact, a critical love. The love that Jesus has for you is not an admiring kind of love. He has regard, compassion. Compassion is regard for the lowly on account of their lowliness. That's the kind of love he has for us. He has compassion. Looking back, it says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because... They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So his love for them is actually in response to what they lack. And we'll, I'll, I'll revisit this to make sure it, it sinks in at the end of the message. And most of the time, maybe all of the time, in fact, I read all the instances. I'm pretty sure I can say all the time. Uh, all of the time, let's go with that. When we see Jesus having compassion for someone, it's always... It, the context of it is always because they lacked something. So, for instance, there's a passage in Luke 7 where Jesus has compassion on a widow whose only son had just died. What's his, his compassion is for what she's lacking. You know, she's lacking anyone to take care of her. In Matthew 20, he has compassion for blind men. Because why? Because they lack sight. Um, the word compassion isn't used in the Mark 10, 21 passage referring to the rich young ruler. It just says, Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. But then what does Jesus say? 
one thing you lack. One thing you lack. The love that God has for you is based on your lack. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's a compassionate love. And all too often, Christianity has been perverted into where we in the pews think that we're striving for an admirational kind of love from the Father. And no such thing is possible. That's just not possible. The love that you can experience from God is a compassionate love. That's the only choice you get. And we're going to see in a minute that if you try to go a different route, you will only find his anger This is the only way. Oh, it's the most common of all of his emotions. It's not an admiring kind of love. It's rooted in in sympathy and pity and mercy. And number three, compassion, like all of Christ's emotions, I'd say all of God's emotions, overflows into action. You know, this idea that Jesus' feelings were always based on facts, like that's pretty revolutionary. Well, another pretty revolutionary thing is, is that all of his feelings overflowed into action. He did stuff with his feelings. And actually, I think 1 John three seventeen tells us that that's what godly love is. 1 John three seventeen says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need. So this is like a person who is feeling stirred. You know, um, These are the kind of people who, who think that their, their good works go, should involve social media in which they raise awareness. You know, uh, like, like just the feelings. Like it's the feelings. That's the thing. I want to be identified by what I feel. And First uh, John 3.17 says, No, if that's the kind of thing going on in your heart, that's not the love of God. Because, because if anyone sees, if anyone has the goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? It's, there's, a, there's an action-oriented thing that involves the love of God. God's love always takes action. This means that God, God's love never stops uh, doing things. It, God's love is not merely sentimental. It is not, um, there was an old hymn in the, 70s maybe, 60s, called I'm So Tired of Being Stirred and Never Changed. And it was sort of a recoiling back to the quietism and the kumbaya-ism of the 70s Jesus movement, I believe. And it was just this sense of, okay, I've been stirred plenty of times. I, I need to, I need change to come behind these emotions. And you never see that. You never see that problem with God. God always acts on what he feels. He feels it perfectly and righteously, and he acts perfectly and righteously. So when Jesus has compassion on the widow who's lost her son, he takes action. And now the widow has her son back. When Jesus sees blind men who lack sight, and he feels compassion for them, he takes action. And now those blind men And when Jesus sees the rich young ruler lacking something, he tells him what he's lacking. This one thing you lack, sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor and follow me. Number four, sometimes the action of compassion is word-based. In fact, I think it's probably always at least partly word-based. As in the case of the rich young ruler, 
Sometimes the right action when you see someone lacking is to give them more information. It's the information they're lacking. You need to do this. Um, there's, a, there's a verse in Mark 6, 34, where it says that Jesus had compassion on a crowd. And what was the action that he followed through with in his compassion? He taught them many things. You know, uh, Jay preached a sermon in, in Acts 16, you know, a handful of weeks ago. And in Acts 16 is where Paul has the Macedonian vision, where he has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And the text says that Paul understood that vision to mean come to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. And I bring that up because there's this really strange, unfortunate notion in which the phrase mercy ministries only applies to giving people the physical needs. But, and, and that's, I mean, that's an important part of this. And you see Jesus doing that very thing. But you also see plenty of instances in which Jesus's compassionate response to a lack is to give them truth, right? To give them the word. And that's really what we see here. He sees a crowd harassed and confused like sheep without a shepherd. And he says to his disciples, well, I'll paraphrase it. He says, gentlemen, we have a problem. Our soul to shepherd ratio is way off. It is, by the way. It still is. It says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out more workers. So this all just reminds us that, that, that Jesus has, as his primary emotion, compassion, that compassion always follows with real action. And times that action, that action is always what it needs to be. Let's put it that way. Action is always what it needs to be. So now let's talk about this, this third idea kind of, of Christmas floating around in all of this. And it's related to the last two. And that is Jesus in this text is doing on earth what he did in heaven. I want to read this passage again to you. And I want you to think about Jesus now in this passage doing on earth what he had been doing in heaven all along. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. One of the things that we know about Jesus, thanks to passages like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, is that God has, through Jesus, revealed himself fully. Jesus is the fullness of God in flesh. He makes things about the Godhead, which were once wrapped in mystery, now far more clear. And this text, I believe, showing Jesus, God in flesh, looking over a people, feeling as if they are harassed and confused, well, they were, and saying they need a shepherd. What I want to suggest to you is, is that this is not the first time Jesus has felt this. And that this is actually the cause of Christmas. What I want to suggest is that the, tri the triune God has been looking down on this place called earth and on the people of this place for centuries and longer than that 
saying, these people are harassed and confused. All of them. And all of the so-called shepherds that have arisen in the past, really, um, really a disappointment. These people need the good shepherd. And so I think if you want to know, like, what's the heart behind Christmas? You could look at Matthew 9, 35 through 38 and say, the same things Jesus is seeing, the same things Jesus is feeling, and the same things Jesus is planning to do about it, that's the heart of Christmas. The Godhead saw a world despairingly enslaved and harassed to sin and to Satan. And he sent the shepherd. The shepherd. We all know the Christmas story that angels appeared to announce the birth of Christ. I'm laughing because I just thought, you know, Friday night was just, just too much cuteness for one. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful Christmas play. We all know the Christmas story. Angels appeared to the shepherds to announce the birth of Christ. And for as long as I've been around, most of the time I've heard that explained as following. Shepherds were on the low rung of the socioeconomic ladder. And Jesus appears to them to announce, you know, hey, I'm, I'm all about the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder. The one problem with that is, is that some of the wealthiest people in the world, the wise men, were also there. Uh, why, did, why did angels appear to shepherds who were shepherding their flocks by night? Well, maybe it is because they were poor and marginalized. It also could be that the thing they were doing that night is the thing Jesus came to do. To look after his flock. To protect them from the wolf and to provide for them the nourishing food of his bread and his living water. The main significance of those shepherds, I think, is that they were doing the very thing Jesus had come to do. In Ezekiel 34, we see God looking down on his people, and he compares them to sheep, and he says, in verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of dark clouds and thick darkness and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. And then in verse 15, he reiterates, he says, I myself will be of my sheep. And I, make my, I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. One of my favorite TV commercials during the Christmas time is are the Lexus commercials. 
not because I'm dreaming of Alexis. The notion of being blindfolded by someone you love and walked outside <laughs> to find a $50,000 car with a bow on it it's just, it's just pretty romantic. Come on. I just, I just get the feels when I watch that commercial. Friends, man, what a great job I have. I get to lead all of you blindfolded out, out right now and say, here's the deal. The God of the universe has come to shepherd you. Surprise. That's... That's Christmas. That's, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the God of the universe looking down at you and I in our lack and loving us and taking the action necessary to become our shepherd. What do we do with this? Well, maybe, I mean, really just worship, right? <laughs> There's a few things I'd like to leave in your, in your heads for this week. And this is a warning. I'm almost done, so this is a shorter sermon than normal. Um, the first thing I'd like to throw out to you that is turning around in my heart is, if compassion is the primary emotion we see from Jesus, um, I'm pretty clear on what my primary emotion should be as a follower of Jesus. I think that's pretty simple and convicting. Jesus mostly viewed the world with compassion. And there are many other emotions that Jesus displays. But if this is the primary one, and it isn't even close, by the way, I do need to say that then I, I know what the main thing I should be feeling is as I go through life. There will be other emotions. There will be there are instances where Jesus feels more than one thing at one time, as people do. But let this sink in. It's not even close. If you study the Gospels, you will find as Jesus walks in this world, he is struck with compassion in response to people's lack. And often, very often, what are we struck with by people's lack? Frustration? Pride? Arrogance? At least I'm not like that guy. Anger? And Jesus responds with a compassionate love. Some of us were here yesterday trying to clean up a little from the pageant. And you want to guess which role in the play made the biggest mess? And it's not even close. The sheep. Those tots were dropping cotton balls left and right. <laughs> it's like a tracking device. We know, we know, we didn't know there were rooms in this church that they knew about, but they, you know. You know, man. Heaven forbid that we interact with one another as we interact with the lack that we each have. Heaven forbid we interact with that with anything other than compassion 
and compassion that follows through with action. Well, where does that come from? How, how can our emotional lives be transformed into lives that, emotional lives that look more and more like Christ's? Because some of us have had pretty rough lives, and some of us have gotten punched a time or two, which tends to produce some calluses around the old heart. I mean, how do we do this? Because it's not simple. The Bible's pretty clear about this. Um, the, the fundamental way we exhibit the compassionate love of Christ to others is by understanding that the compassionate love of Christ has been exhibited to us. And sometimes our lack of compassion shows that we are actually seeking an admiration kind of love from God. And heaven forbid, we might actually think we're getting it. That's terrible. The way we begin to be instruments of mercy is to realize that we are objects of mercy. Um, This is a very important thing that I'm about to say. If you'll notice, if you look back at that Ezekiel text, it ends with with a sanction. With a, with a harsh thing. And I want to be super clear about this. You can be loved by Jesus on account of your low, lowliness or you cannot be loved. And those are the two choices. Because some of, you, some of us might just lack humility and might need to hear, hear it that, <laughs> that honestly. Um, you can be loved by Jesus on account of your lowliness or you cannot be loved. The compassionate love of Jesus is the only door into the good graces of God. The way of admiration is shut out to you and I. We do not get to go through that door. Basically, there's a Psalm 51 way to live that leads to life, and there's a Psalm 52 way to live that leads to death. Psalm 51.1, David is caught in sin. He cries out to the Lord, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That way leads to life. It's an appeal to the compassion of God. Psalm 52, verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. Riches there just means anything, right? Not just money. Trusted in the abundance of your righteousness, Trust in the abundance of your cleverness. Trust in the abundance of your morality. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That way leads to death. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs and only theirs, emphasis added by me, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, another Lexus in the driveway, joyful moment. You don't have to be harassed and confused anymore. Some of you have been, and that was because you chose to walk away from the shepherd. You chose to abandon the protection and provision that his word provides you in abundance. 
when you entered a season in which you were harassed and confused. But you don't have to be harassed and confused because Jesus has come to be the great shepherd. And he provides the food you need with his word. He provides the protection you need with his word. And he's even provided you with people in your lives in answer to the prayer that Jesus calls for in Matthew 9, 38. The last time any of us were harassed and confused, if we trace back what happened, it was almost certainly because of some arrogance on our part, some sense that we knew better, and some sense that this shepherd really wasn't as good at his job as he claims to be. But God, even right now, if you've gone through a season of being harassed and confused, like it's right here again, Jesus just says, Hi there, I, I am the good shepherd. And you can repent and you can obey his word and you are redeemed from this status or this state of being harassed and confused. Now, as I introduce communion, I just wanna read John ten eleven to you where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Today, the Lord's table was set before us as a way for us to celebrate this shepherd who not only had sentimental notions of providing for us, but followed through all the way to death, even death on a cross to make provision for you and I to be made right with God so that we can, what's the word, take shelter in, take refuge in the the complacent love that God has for the Son and the complacent love that the Son has for God, the completely non-critical, fully accepting, fully satisfied love. The way to get into that relationship is because of Jesus' death on the cross for the sake of our sins, providing us with his righteousness. And this table celebrates, commemorates the pouring of his blood and the the breaking of his body for our sake. So I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So come today. Thank you, Jesus, for this incredible gift.